This is Authors in Focus. Welcome to the Authors in Focus podcast. Today, I'm joined by Anat Eliraz, author of Jewels of Smoky Quartz. How are you doing today, Anat? I'm doing great, and thanks for having me. Oh, thanks for being here. You're uh, pretty far away. I'm in Canada, and you're way overseas. The weather's probably a lot better in Israel than uh, than where I am. It probably is, even though it's been said that it's the coldest March for the last 100 years here. So oh, wow. <laughs> it's less warm than what we're used to having at this point of the year. Right. Well, this has just been the most brutal winter. Crazy amounts of snow and cold and misery. And finally, uh, I can walk outside the door without wearing heavy boots and even a spring jacket. So I'm, I'm happy. It's, it's good for the morale when the weather gets a little bit better. But uh, anyway, like I said, thanks for being here. We're going to talk about Jewels of Smoky Quartz and about your writing. But uh, I'd like to start with a couple of fun questions before we get into the kind of heavier stuff. So if you could have a drink with any author, living or dead, who would it be and why? I think that I would love to have a drink with Charles DeLint. Um, don't know how much of a known author he is abroad, though he's not local here, but I just love the way he writes. I love the way his uh, plots are so um, not as much as twisted as having lots of layers in them and um, his characters are very sophisticated. I really, really like the way he writes a tale. So that's cool because I've actually never heard of him. So you're going to have to send me some information and I'll have to check him out. I'm always up to discovering a new author. Um, sure. Well, that sounds cool. Um, so I'm going to borrow this question from my other podcast book and a pint because we use it quite often. And, and I kind of like it. So we're talking about media here. So we're talking about, you know, movies, TV, books, gaming, music, anything like that. So I don't really like to use the word guilty pleasure because technically I think that, you know, there's stuff out there for anyone and you should like what you like and not really be guilty about it. Um, but if there was something that you um, media wise that you really liked that a lot of people would be very surprised that you liked, what would that be? I don't think I'm going to have an answer for that one. <laughs> I'm not really into much of media in general. I guess I started it mostly ever since I wrote the book. I don't watch too much TV. I don't really go to the cinema. So sometimes when there's the question, so who would you put as uh, the, the actor to play your main character? And I go like, I don't know, because I don't know the names of probably 90 plus percent of the characters I ever see in movies. So sadly, I'll have to uh, lower my head and say that. <laughs> There's there won't be much surprises or maybe this is the surprise that I just don't use much media in general. No, that's that's OK. There's there's no um, there's no wrong answers. I've had people that I've you know, that have written books that have come on and I've talked to them and I've been like, yeah, what are your favorite books or your favorite authors? And they've in, in full like deadpan said, to be honest, I've never read a book. <laughs> 
I've heard lots of different answers, and that's totally cool. And I mean, I find that that I was much more um, media uh, obsessed. You know, before I had my kids, it was like a really big thing for me to go catch movies that I wanted to see in the theaters right away and, you know, be up on the newest music that I was looking forward to. Now I find I'm generally watching what my kids watch um, (laughs) and getting into, you know, whatever. Like now they're getting a little bit older. So, you know, I took them to see the Batman, which was really cool. My seven-year-old was probably a little young for it. He didn't really get what was going on. thought it was a bit confusing. My nine-year-old daughter loved it. So... You know, it's not just kids shows. We're starting to get into stuff that I would I would like to. But um, let's talk about, well, about your writing and your path to writing and Jewels of Smoky Quartz, uh, first and foremost. Being that this is your first published work, when did you know you wanted to be a writer to the point where you actually wanted to publish a book? What kind of brought that writing buzz on and give us a little bit of a uh, of a journey into how this book got created? Actually, it's um, like two parts that are totally separated for me. I've been writing from a young age, uh, poems and songs and short stories and stories that I've never finished. But when I actually finished writing Jewels of Smoky Quartz, I didn't even plan on publishing it. And it just sat there for about a year plus until COVID came along and in the first lockdown, which I wasn't working full time uh, compared to all the rest of the lockdowns. I had some free time and I used to hear and listen to all kinds of podcasts and lectures and stuff uh, on the web. And that's when I started getting to all kinds of lectures and podcasts about publishing. And I said, why not? Maybe it's good enough and somebody would think it's worth reading. And that's actually when I started the whole process. It was actually around March or April of 2020, which was our first lockdown. Cool. So why did you not think you wanted to publish it? I don't know, because when I wrote it, I just had to write it. it I, I, I write scenes and they just came to me and sometimes they'd wake me in the middle of the night and you're not going to go back to sleep until you finish writing what's on your mind. And the whole book was written that way. And only when most of it was finished, I started putting it in order and started putting connections between the different scenes. And then it was just finished. I let two people read it. I got some feedback. I changed some stuff. And that was it. I I didn't know how to publish. I didn't know where I should get information about it. At that time, I wasn't even on any readers or writers groups in Facebook or any other media. And it just sat on my discount key. I I never actually knew if I was going to do anything with it. Right. And it was an inch and COVID was an interesting time too for, um, you know, obviously there were some serious ramifications and it affected some people in, in pretty horrible ways. But I also think that the silver lining, at least in speaking to a lot of people is that the downtime and the, the quieter time, I guess, um, and the more introspective time uh, brought a lot of people into creativity. I mean, I know that, I co-wrote like probably 10 or 11 books during that time. And um, before COVID, I had only gotten through, you know, maybe five chapters of my first book. 
So, you know, I, it's, it's interesting to hear what that time was able to bring out in creative people. Yeah, I hear that a lot, too, because many, many people either started writing during the lockdowns or, you know, when, when they couldn't go to work or started working from home or in general had suddenly more free time that they weren't used to before. And even people that did write before actually started doing something with their writing during COVID. So, yes, I also hear that quite a lot, both on the groups and even hear from friends that write, you know, in my local uh, language and, and they're not going to go uh, uh, worldwide with it, but but are actually doing a lot of writing here and either publishing or thinking towards doing it in the future. Right. So I have a segment basically called Pimp Your Book or Pitch Your Book, however you want to say it. But there is quite a, a solid listenership to this podcast. It would be a cool time for you to let everybody know a little bit about the book and what they can expect and why people should be getting it right now. So Joseph Smorky Quartz is actually a story about a nurse who also practices martial arts. And one day she goes to practice outside and suddenly she finds herself in another world. And she she actually has to use all her skills and her knowledge to both survive and find her way to this new place she is in. What I like and think most of the readers that did correspond with me liked up till now was that I wrote it as an active book. I mean, you don't move from, if you think this, move to page whatsoever, but there are some stories that you read and you're kind of being fed the story. Right. Um, you're just reading, it could be a great story, but you're reading it and whatever you read is what you get. And in Joseph Smoky Quartz, some of the interesting parts is, first, there are all kinds of twists and turns, but there's a lot of word games in the book. Uh, some you get the answers to quite fast after they appear. Some take like a few pages or a few chapters until you you get the answer to, to the word game that was before. And there are all kinds of clues that are strewn throughout the story that you might pick up and say, okay, but why did she mention this? Or why is this mentioned again? And then you say it must have some some importance. And then at some point you understand it all builds up and, and comes to some conclusion. And some readers can say, yeah, I got that from the first time, from the second time it was around. And others will go back pages and say, oh, how did I miss it? And so it kind of makes the reader more active into the story, and I think it's fun. I like reading books like that. Yeah, no, I'm um, I'm a sucker for the good plot twist. I don't know if it's if it's very if it's a very popular opinion anymore, but um, I I'm a, a fan of M Night Shyamalan. Not all of his movies. Um, he's he's I don't in case you the name isn't uh, coming to you. He's the uh, director of The Sixth Sense and, yeah. and a bunch of other movies: The uh, Unbreakable, Split, The Village. Yeah. Um, pretty much famous at least at the beginning for. Um, shocking plot twist endings where you go back and you're like, how did I not know that? That's so amazing. So another, like, um, not to give any spoilers, but uh, James Islington, uh, who wrote the Lycanius trilogy, which is an epic fantasy doorstopper trilogy, kind of in the vein of, of um, I guess, 
Sanderson and Robert Jordan had this killer plot twist at the end of his first book that just mm-hmm. still after I think I read it three years ago and there are still times when I think about it and I'm like that is the reason why I read books so <laughs> it's really cool to be able to do that I, I'm not I've never been a, a fan of things that are, are like the like things that are too literal like the um the beach reads that are just like what you see is what you get and don't take you on a little bit of a mind-bending quest yeah so um that sounds really amazing I, I can't say that I, I come to the, even to the knees of Unbreakable or The Sixth Sense, but that's what I mean, that you get all kinds of small clues along the way, but you either get them or you miss them. And then when they give you the conclusion in the end, you say, oh, wow, yeah. <laughs> and they show you how it worked, actually. They give you the the kind of flashbacks, the the oh, so that's why he couldn't open the door, or this is why he didn't answer the door. Right. No, I, I totally get what you're saying. Um, favorite character while you were working on this book, a char- and, and why? Like a character that you just loved writing? And did, is there anyone that, you know, you've, because I know that a lot of times, I've heard this before, it doesn't really happen to me that way, but I've heard it happen to a lot of authors where their characters kind of start having a mind of their own and, and drawing the story in certain directions. Was there a character that you wrote in the book that you found to be a little bit of a pain? A pain or enjoyed reading, uh, writing? Well, both, both. Like one, <laughs> one, that, one that you really loved writing and one that might have just twisted you around a little bit. Uh, yeah, but it's not the same character, actually. The one oh, no, I that's really okay. loved. <laughs> the one I really loved writing is actually the second MC, not the main one. And I loved writing him because he's kind of based on characters I used to play in Dungeons and Dragons games. He is kind of a stereotype of of the of the characters I, I loved playing. So I really enjoyed writing him because it was like bringing one of my characters to life. And the one that kind of uh, was playing with me is a character that in the beginning was actually supposed to be a really side character. They were supposed to meet him somewhere on their journey. He was supposed to give them some information, help them a little along, and that was all his part. And he just demanded to have a larger part in the book. And you get some things about him. You do still have a lot of mystery about him. But he's going to get a very a very big part in the second book. And it was kind of funny because we had, in one of the writers' groups, they did some kind of exercise that you take one of the characters that were supposed to be a side character and demanded to be more, and you had a chat with them or an interview. And I just did an interview with him, and it was kind of a fun, fun exercise and a fun, funny kind of uh, writing part. He was like going, "If you don't give me a bigger part, I'm going to tell them what's going on," and so on. And it was like, "You don't dare." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've definitely, um, as I was writing my series, there were side characters that um, I don't say actually didn't actually come to me that way. It was just <clears throat> more from the form of you know, beta readers that read the books that were like, you should really do more with this random side character. And I heard it so many times that I ended up creating another book where that side <laughs> character ended up being the main character. And probably everybody that's read my Cider and Ale Chronicles favorite character. And it was never intent. The character was a joke 
that was just supposed to be annoying. But then everybody loved him so much that we really developed the character. And as the series went on, made him somewhat more realistic and a lot less annoying. Um, yeah. redeem, redeemably annoying as opposed to unfathomably annoying like he was when he started. So um, interesting the way things like that happen. Writing can be a very um, narcissistic thing because they say, you know, you write what you know. And most people tend to know themselves better than anything else or than anyone else, I should say. How much of you of yourself has made it into these characters? Like, are there scenes where people that were reading it would just be like, oh, that totally sounds exactly like you? I don't think there are scenes that will sound that way. But there is some of me in most of the characters, at least the ones that get more stage time, as you can say. For example, as I told you, the second MC is based on characters I loved playing. So I used to play them and he's like a prototype of them. The main character herself is based a lot about things I know and do. She's a nurse. I'm not a nurse. I'm a physiotherapist, but I've been working with nurses ever since 2005. So I'm in everyday contact with them. And she practices martial arts, which I have been doing since 1999 and on and off, but generally uh, for quite a few years. And she's higher ranking than I am, but the idea for certain um, like fight scenes and stuff like that came from things that I practiced, that I went to ask uh, different teachers and different students what they think about it so it's things that I've kind of researched and checked physically to see if they were appropriate and and logical I did have a thing when I was writing that I wanted things to be logical I don't want a superhero that nothing happens to her and she's supposed to be human. She's not supposed to be invincible. And so she gets hurt and she does mistakes and she has to pay for them. And I think that what makes her more interesting. Yeah, no, that's really cool. Yeah, I think that for me, I'm one of the, one of my challenges is, is trying to break away from that kind of writing from your own perspective and trying to write from the perspective of others. Like the book I'm just about to start working on is written from a female perspective based on a female character that is very different than most of the females in my life. Mm-hmm. And it's a, it's going to be written in a first person, which uh, makes it even more challenging. It does sound challenging. Even writing in first person, I think, is quite challenging. There's so many things that you can't talk about and can't explore because you're limited to that very sort of narrow whatever is happening right in front of the character perspective. So that's something that this is going to be a, a challenge. I'm just going to, I'll, I'll just say that. Um, I want to switch gears a little bit and, and talk a little bit about this self-publishing thing. So you've decided to self-publish the novel, which is really cool. It's really cool that people are able to do that now and that there is such um, kind of a, a wave of, of, uh, of self-published uh, novels, especially I find in fantasy and sci-fi. What's the experience been like for you so far? Like, what have you really loved about it? What have you found to be a little bit more challenging? Well, I actually did it not for the reasons that some people do it, like if they're in Europe or America or wherever, because 
since I live in a non-English speaking country, my book was mostly for people living anywhere else in the world. And trying to publish through traditional publishing here in, in my country, it was kind of worthless because the audience was not here. And I was kind of afraid to approach traditional publishers abroad because I didn't know how all the rules and regulations about these things worked when you're actually doing it with someone from another country. And I really didn't want to get in trouble with the laws, not here and not in anywhere else. So I thought that indie publishing would be the best solution because then I do what I do and I can put it on Amazon and whoever wants to read it or buy it is free to do so. And I don't have to deal with anything that that has to do with laws, taxes, regulations, whatever apart from the payments that you get from Amazon, which is fine. I I pay my part to the country and to the taxes. Right. Um, I didn't do it for the reasons of getting rejected from publishing uh, companies. I sure have learned a lot about what I don't want to do the next time around. And with my next book, I do advise people that go indie publishing the things I think you should pay for is really good editing and preferably if you find an editor that also works a lot in your genre of writing because it is important that he'll or she will uh, enjoy reading and actually enjoy the book and not just pass it as words and paragraphs and chapters along the way and cover art. So if you're not very good yourself as an artist, get a good cover art because I do think that especially in books and especially when, you know, people scroll through lists of books, um, what catches the eye is a good cover. The story can be amazing, but if the cover doesn't catch your eye, they, they might just move on without knowing it. You're totally right. First of all, I love your cover. I mean, I, I would imagine that you're not necessarily you're referring to your cover because I think your cover is no, just, no, just the th two things. I think that if someone is thinking about what to put their money into by and, and going indie publishing, then these are things I would not uh, put aside, oh, not yeah. give. I don't know, try to put it in Word or, or one of the editing programs and say, yeah, it's good enough. What always amazes me, and I, this is not to knock people, because I understand that, that people have budgets and stuff like that, is like those self-made covers that look like they were made on a Commodore 64 from like 1986. <laughs> and, and like, seriously, and, and they're out there and they're wondering why people aren't paying attention when, you know, you've got these beautiful, stunning covers out there. I, I totally agree because there's so much thrown at you with indie publishing and indie books, like if, even on Amazon. Like if you just buy one book, you're like, hey, you should check out all of these as well. And they all look stunning. You have to compete with what's out there because exactly. it's so easy, especially in a point and click world where, you know, for 99 cents to $2, you can get like, Three books sometimes, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and there is like, there's a stigma about indie publishing, but I feel like there are enough strong indie publishers and enough successful indie publishers out there that gradually, day by day, the stigma is starting to break down. I think so too. And I think that since indie publishing began, 
even very well-known authors started indie publishing some of their work. You probably heard about the, the Kickstarter that Brandon Sanderson just did, which like broke world records or something like that. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Like, um, like twenty, and, twenty-three million or something like that. Yeah, it's it's unbelievable. And I don't even know what he needs. That I don't. You can. It's it's funny when people do that. I mean, good for him. Even for me to get the money to to do whatever I needed for the publishing. I didn't have enough, so I did a crowdfunding. And even though my crowdfunding, you know, people didn't know me at that time, and it was mostly uh, friends of friends and people from, uh, from you know, different communities, whether it's the martial arts or whether it's the medical part staffs and or whether it's uh, fantasy lovers, it's kind of a way to advertise your book before it's actually done. Because right. I used the money to help me get it published. It wasn't done yet. Right. The story was done, but not the whole process. And by doing so, by having people uh, pay to order a signed book or bookmarks or an ebook or whatever, it got the word out that the book was coming. And in a way, that's exactly what's happened here, though. If you talk about Brandon Sanderson, he's got such a huge crowd of, of readers that it's not a surprise that people would come and say, oh, sure, I'll put in money in and get like a special box set or whatever. So it's not surprising he got what he <laughs> what he got. But no, in general, no. I, I can understand why why doing a crowdfunding or Kickstarter or whatever can do a really good job at, at actually doing an advertising for whatever work you're putting forth. Definitely. Actually, I was, well, you, I'm, you commented on it, so I, I don't know if you listened to it, but I, I interviewed um, James Nelson, a historical writer who has a, like a really seasoned career. Like he's been on um, Harper Collins and, and, um, yeah. and I think Random House and a whole, yeah. he's had different things come out on, on lots and of different major publishers. Publishing. Yeah. I remember he, his, uh, yeah, and he's indie publishing now. Um, well, he's he's hybrid, so he's doing some trad and some indie, but he's having uh, the most success right now. And, and he's with indie publishing, and he's really enjoying the process because it allows him to be prolific too. It allows him to put out books faster and not have to adhere to the you know limitations of the of the publishers, um, you know, only wanting one book out a year or whatever. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And he talks about it, too, because it's both the time it takes until an actual uh, traditional publishing company would get your book out. But it also has to do with their payments, because once you indie publish, all the royalties are yours. And, okay, you have to do all the marketing, you do have to do all the things around, but whatever you get for it, it's yours. Yeah, no, I understand um, completely. So as an indie author, how do you like to network with your readers? Like, what's your favorite way of networking with readers? Do you see it as a um, a significant part of the process? I see it as the most fun part of the process. Um, I did say I'm not in I'm not in many of the media groups. Uh, I mean, I don't have Twitter. I don't have Instagram. I, I just can't get my head around everything. But I do use Facebook, 
and my page is open for anyone, and I do get readers that correspond with me. And I must say that sometimes readers uh, contact me after they read the book, and that's fine, and it's really fun to hear what they think, and uh, I answer questions they have and so on. But sometimes readers contact me before or as they're reading the book, and that's the most amazing part. Because as they're reading the book and getting to certain scenes in the book and they are giving you their feelings and and thoughts as it happens, it's like the raw feelings of exactly that moment, that scene that happens. And it's like, how could you so-and-so or, you know, like all my days and lots of of, uh, (laughs) allergies going on around it. So... It's like, this makes me understand, did I write this scene as I wanted it? Did I get the readers to have certain feelings or certain emotions about what was going on? And that's actually more than anything else what I enjoy most. I sometimes even, you know, do a screenshot of things that uh, people comment about because it's so fun to go back and look at it afterwards. Yeah, no, that's awesome. So what's next for you? I'm working on two projects. One is the sequel for Jewels of Smoky Quartz, which I have about between 50 and 60 pages done. And it seems it's not from chapter one, two, and so on. And I am working on another fantasy novel, which might be called Paranormal. I'm not sure exactly about all the subgenres in it, which is happening on Earth during World War II, something that uh, a few, not a few, quite a lot of years back I did some research about, and I am thinking about using the things I found out in the research as part of the book, but adding the fantasy part to it. Awesome. So a couple of new projects for people to get excited about. Sounds amazing. So I usually ask this question at the end of, of interviews because I think it's really important and there's always kind of a different perspective because everybody's kind of had different experiences with their writing journey. But if you could offer new and aspiring uh, writers one piece of advice, what would that be? I think that the one piece of advice I would give is write. And write whenever, whichever, however you can. Because in some writers groups, I see like Write every day, even if it's a few sentences, even if you doodle something that will not go into the story, write. And it might work for some people. Some people might stop writing if they don't write every day. But some people need, like me, need the muse to write. I I can't write every day. I have to write when something strikes me, when when the scene comes into my mind and I have to put it down on paper. And then I can have times that I don't write for weeks. And then in a couple of days, I'll write like 10,000 words. And that's how it works for me. And it's fine because then I know that whatever I do write, I write it from my heart. It's it's like with all my emotions, with everything that I wanted to put into it, even if it's just a draft and it's going to change later on. This is how I think anyone, anyone that thinks they have a story to tell, even if it's only writing it for themselves, it's worth telling, it's worth writing, because there is some kind of um, like self-care in writing, um, lots of writers say that they 
kind of like put things they have to deal with in their own life in a kind of a story way into the pages. And then they let the characters find the right answers to it. But even if they make mistakes, you know, nobody gets hurt because it's just characters on a page and they right. kind of try and find the solutions for, for what they're um, trying to solve or whatever they're um, having to figure out with the right, with their writing. So if you have something to write, just write it. Even if you'll never publish it, it's worth being written. Even if it's just for yourself or someone close to you, it's still a, a great, a great audience that should get the story done. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I think that, um, you know, I, I, I've, gone through a little bit of a challenging month and a half. And I think um, I've gotten completely away from thinking about writing, which is why when James, my co-writer, messaged me and said, hey, are we still working on that project yeah. starting in April? I was like, oh, wow, I really have to think about that. And that's when I started thinking about making it a challenge and, you know, bringing as kind of like the, a phoenix out of the rising from the ashes kind of metaphor of like using this time to possibly create the best thing I've ever created. So that's kind of the intention. And I, I you know, because a lot of the lead up to what I experienced made it into the other book. And then when things just went crazy, I, I distanced myself. So I, I, I think that's a really great, I, great piece of advice. And I think that that works. It would work for everybody is, you know, the self-care element of writing and making sure that it remains a part of, you know, kind of like exercise. Yeah. And I think it works for every age because I know I have poems and songs I wrote you know, back in like 1992 or 1993, and I I still have all of them. And I read back, and I know that it was a really turmoil uh, time in my life, you know, both uh, being a teenager and not living exactly at the most peaceful place on earth. So, uh, yeah, it, it had a lot of things that I think that writing kind of let me put on paper things that I felt like nobody else will understand. Now reading back on it, I think some of it is amazing. And I think, yeah, I was just a kid then, but still there's, there's something deep into some of these things. So. Yeah. And that, where can, um, where exactly can people find you if they want to network or find out more okay. about you? If they were looking for me, Facebook will be the best place and my page is open. So you can either message me or, or ask for a friend's request. I will be happy to answer. Um, my books are available. My book is available on Amazon, uh, both as a paperback and an ebook, and it's free on Kindle Unlimited. There is something kind of neat that a friend did. Um, I have a song I wrote for the book, and she took the words and she kind of wrote music for them and sang it out. So if you don't mind the foreign accent, then you can uh, use the same name, Jewels of Smoky Quartz, in YouTube, and you can have uh, the song. So it's kind of neat, I think, too. Well, I'm <laughs> going to go check it out. That sounds awesome. And um, base place is Facebook, and I'm quite active there. So usually not more than 48 hours, I, I will get messages and and whatever, usually every day. But in worst case, from work uh point of view <laughs> then once every two days i'm i'm sure to to see if anybody left me a message awesome well annette it's been really great talking to you 
I wish you all the best with your current, uh, with, with life and your book and, and your future releases. And uh, definitely look forward to talking to you again sometime. Thank you. Thank you very much. It was a great pleasure. Okay, take care. <laughs> Bye-bye. Thanks. This has been Authors in Focus. You can find my satirical fantasy novels on Amazon. Need help finding readers? Connect with me on Facebook in the Fantasy Sci-Fi Focus group or at authorsinfocus at gmail.com. You can find more episodes of this podcast at fantasy-focus.com and where your favorite podcasts are hosted. Mm-hmm.